0: This is the wine world, where Heine Johansson and Mortenbord booked into you top-of-the-pops wine people from all over the world. So Kenny here on the show with folk machine and hobo wineries.
1: Yeah, and a few others actually, but that's a very uh, that's a very californian
0: thing, isn't it, to to just have a lot of names for your business. It's common in california, but I'm not sure if it's uncommon other places. Well, it depends a bit. And if you're in a very um, traditional area, then normally you would have the name that your great-grandfather chose for your
1: company and then you'd be stuck with it. Yeah, I suppose.
0: So you got Folk machine and the whole umbrella of it is called hobo wines.
1: Yeah, and there's all, but there are hobo wines as well. There's the folk machine, Ghost Rider, Camp, Banyan. Um, and then Lynn has uh, one wine as well, Edith and Ida. Stylistically, everything's pretty similar. So I feel like if I'm talking about one, I'm to some extent talking about all of them. I think they're they're geographically more separate than like what where they're made and what we're doing is fairly similar. And stylistically, what is your sort of philosophy of winemaking? I would say that we tend to be like less intervention. Try to like work more in the vineyard, less in the winery. When we started almost 20 years ago we were kind of making like somewhat like retro California wines, lower alcohol, more acid. Um, That's become more common, so it's not as much of a defining point, but still like we tend to like, I guess at at what I would call at this point, like moderate alcohol levels, more acid in the wines, kind of a better expression of the vineyard, like picking out lower sugars so that the vineyard, I think, is more obvious in the wines than than at higher sugar levels.
0: I've seen that you choose quite a variety of grapes as well.
1: Yeah, that that's um I think that's a luxury in California is that we're not we're not limited to particular grapes in a particular region. There's no laws about about that. So it's kind of fun just like to experiment with things and when the experiments go well, you kind of wanna just keep going with them and keep the wines in the stable and so you, we've ended up with a lot of wines over 20 years, just because it's been fun to make new wines. And then when they've worked out, we've kept going. And for the names, for instance, for Folk Machine and for Hobo Wines, what's the story behind those? They're they're both pretty much like Americana themed. I think I like Americana. I like that era of American history. The Folk Machine specifically is inspired by Woody Guthrie, an American singer-songwriter. Hobo is, is kind of like the same era. It's a little bit of like a tribute or an homage to, I guess, like what I think of as like Americans traveling and working and kind of making their way around around the country. It's kind of an era that's gone now too. In the sense of winemaking, do you have
0: um, a, a picture of who drinks your wine and and who enjoys it? Who Who is your kind of ideal customer?
1: I have a picture of... Who I think, yeah, I, I guess, but I don't know if it's accurate. Like, I mean, I've always wanted people like ourselves, like like myself, I guess, to drink my wine. I mean, I always felt most comfortable to make wine for people that were in a income demographic and social demographic similar to myself. So I, we've we've never really strived to make like expensive, fancy wines because the We we didn't have a lot of experience in that world of expensive expensive fancy wines, so we tried to make wines that were more moderate in price, but over delivered for the I guess over delivered in quality for the price. That was kind of definitely an underlying goal in in terms of the business.
0: I had Roshparg and Gavin Channon on a show earlier, and we were talking a little bit about age worthiness of wine and aging of wine. I think that we will see a trend where it will become more difficult to sell aged wine because less and less people are tasting it, drinking it, evaluating it because the price point is becoming higher. Do you have any thoughts towards your aging your wines? Do you want to
1: make aged wines? I've always felt that in California, it's a bit difficult to make, like I'm not sure that California is the right setting to make wines that are going to last you know, 50 years or that said, I also think that there is potential in California to make wines that can last 10 or 20 years. And I think in some cases it is our goal for the wines to, to at least be able to hold up for 10 years, if not longer. But it's also knowing kind of like what you said, knowing that the market is going that direction towards quick consumption. We also want the wines to be enjoyable, fairly young. So it's, it's, trying to walk both sides of that line. When you sell your wines, do you sell it mostly in the
0: internal market in the US or do you export most of the wine?
1: Um, yeah, we're, we're definitely mostly selling the wine in the United States. Uh, we're probably selling 30 to 35% just in California where we are. And then our, I mean, total exports maybe are 15% of our production or something like that. I was also talking a bit
0: earlier about uh, this toll on wines coming into the US the 100% market toll on on European wines uh, yeah how do you think that that will what do you think will happen to the US market if that gets imposed
1: i don't know if i know what will happen to the market i don't think it's a good thing i think that the consumer ultimately loses i mean they'll have less options or at least if whatever options they have become more expensive uh, i would imagine that that, that would make it make I mean, it makes business difficult in the U S if, if a restaurant is, is doing a certain amount of business on, on selling wine, they're not, that business is going to probably go down. Obviously any kind of like retail store selling wine, um, they're going to have a tougher job. It's, I, I don't see it as being a good situation for the U S market.
0: I get it. You, you don't own that much of vineyards yourself. When you go out and you're looking for grapes, what do you look for in in the same sense of both style and quality?
1: Well, I think we're first looking for the a particular grape planted in a particular terroir. Uh, and then beyond that, at this point in our business, like it needs to be either organically farmed or transitioning to organically farmed uh, for us to be interested. We're looking for owners and farmers that see things similarly to us and have like, I guess, a similar like ethics to to growing grapes that we do. Um, and then also, you know, just people that we think we can get along with and have a long-term lasting relationship with that's not going to be a bunch of headaches. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of grapes in California, but it, it narrows things down pretty quickly.
0: And and when you find those people, when you find those grapes, those vineyards, how do you go about to work with them? Do you, do you work actively in the vineyards yourself or, or do you talk to the farmers and then the farmers would just deliver finished grapes to you?
1: I, I, I guess at the minimum, we're somewhat active where we at least have a, a discussion about how the vineyard's going to be farmed and what the what the goals are that would be the minimum where we're not actually carrying things out, but then all the way to like you know then in some cases we're doing some of the work ourselves in other cases uh, we're leasing properties and doing all of the work so we like to have our hands in everything I would say uh, and have at least a minimal amount of control on all the vineyards that we're sourcing from. For the
0: type of grapes, do you, do you look for the stranger grapes and go like, yes, I'll finally I've found a uh, vineyard of Val de or uh, Trousseau or, or it doesn't
1: matter that much? Uh, like about maybe like 10 or 12 or 13 years ago, I think, yeah, like obscure grapes and weird things was exciting. And we were, anytime anybody had something that we didn't know anything about, we definitely wanted that. But now you can only have so much of those things cuz it's always you're kind of always like pushing the rock uphill to sell those things that nobody's ever heard of and and so it's it's a project and i think you can have you can have a certain amount of projects but you also to sustain the business you have to have some easier easier things that pe- that don't need so much explaining all the time for the people that are selling the wines as well as for ourselves so we have a fair amount of obscure varieties that we work with but we also have a, a lot of Chardonnay, Cabernet, Pinot Noir, things that everybody's familiar with. And we still might have to explain stylistically what we're doing and why the wines are what they are, but at least people are familiar with the varieties, which uh, makes things easier to some extent.
0: You had a wine, I, I think I remember for, from last year, called uh, Batten Down the Hatches, The Storm
1: is Coming. Was the idea behind. Uh... Yeah. So that was our 2017 Folk Machine um, Potter Valley Pinot. And I think uh, we were talking to an artist. So so we do this Potter Valley Pinot every year and the label changes. We generally work with a different artist every year. And then we usually decide the name of the wine and then kind of let the artist just do what they want with the, with the artwork based on the name that we give them. And so that one, uh, we've been talking to an artist about doing a label. And I think the name kind of came like right after the 2016 election i started thinking about about that name
0: it was sort of a prophecy of the 100% toll on european wines
1: <laughs> well it might have been a, even more political than that but yeah something something in the same uh, vein
0: it seems to me that you have a crazy person uh, running your country and that that might might be uh some of the things that that was the pre precursor to to the name as well. Oh, for sure,
1: for sure. I mean, that was that's what the name was all about.
0: <laughs> but okay, you were talking about you've got these normal grapes for California with your pinots, with your cabs, with your chardonnays and so on.
1: What are the the stranger grapes that you make? So, we make a white blend that's based on Tokai Friolano, which is not so common in California. We have um Valdegui, Charbono, I guess Carignan now is getting to be more popular, but when we started making Carignan that was fairly obscure in California. We've done other things that are uh some some that have gone by the wayside now. I mean last like recently we were doing like a dry muscat. That's kind of weird in a still wine for California. Uh we've done Verdello, Verdejo. We still do a little bit of Tempranillo, which isn't that common in California. Yeah, that's right. We do we do some Gamay. There there may be others that I'm not thinking of. We may, we, we crush a lot of different grapes. <laughs>
0: When you're drinking wine yourself, what style of wine
1: do you enjoy drinking? I mean, I guess we, we like the same style of wine that we make. We don't we don't, we don't don't drink a lot of our own wine, but uh, we drink a lot of like French wine in the sort of like 20 to $30 price range. We drink, I guess we drink a fair amount of like the quote unquote kind of new California wines. We like Oregon wines. I don't know that we drink a ton of Oregon wine, but we like them. I think we've been like trying to like educate ourselves more on Italian wines, although that's like... Fairly daunting task. Yeah, we drink a fair amount of champagne. You know, I, I think pretty open to most wine.
0: <laughs> as long as it's alcohol, it's
1: fine. No. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, uh, we like, I mean, uh, you know, we're probably drinking wine almost every day. So there's there's plenty of time for trying things. Have you seen a change in the market, in the style of wines that are popular? I guess so, yeah. There's definitely, I mean, like kind of what we said before, there's a big move towards drinking wines that are much younger you know there's there's the the natural wines and there's a lot of young wines within that too i think i think i think there is also some move away at least in the states from like higher alcohol kind of higher sugar wines people are starting to move away from that and there's like a move away from the like really buttery california chardonnay those those wines are still around but i think there's there's room for other things now too it's not I, i i guess even like 20 years ago when i first got into this uh I mean, if, if you were making Chardonnay and it wasn't oaky and buttery, it wasn't going to sell at all, period. And now there's there's room for other stuff now. And I guess that I'm just talking about California Chardonnay at that point. And how did you get into wine? My dad has worked at a winery since before I was born. So I grew up around a winery and um, did spend a little bit of time working there when I was growing up. And then um, I guess in my early 20s, started drinking wine and taking it more seriously and getting more interested in wine through drinking it, and then just kept going from there.
0: I think it's interesting where I think worldwide you see more and more interest in in lighter wines and in low-alcohol wines, and at the same time the temperature is rising. And I think there's been some hot years now lately in California as well. Do you find it more difficult to make the lighter styles of wine now than it was, let's say, five, ten years ago.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's getting more challenging. What what's hard is I mean you can make you can always make lower alcohol wines because you can always pick at a low sugar. It's just a matter of whether you're gonna have any flavor or acid or not, you know, and so like acids are disappearing a lot, a lot quicker now. We have warmer nights. And so to to really retain acidity you're having you'd have to be picking so early that there's not necessarily a lot of flavor, and so it, it is getting tricky to find that balance between ripeness and acidity um, and alcohol. But I think it also goes back to the sites that you're working with. I mean, all all of our sites everywhere, I think, are being affected by climate change. But the sites that are cooler sites, and depending on soil types and whatnot, like and uh, and what you have planted there, there there is opportunities for. Still getting good acidity at lower sugars, but um, like if you're in the interior of California and growing something like Zinfandel, forget it. You're not going to have any acid, and you know no matter what sugar you pick at. But I, th- I think there is it's requiring a lot more monitoring in the field now. Like I, I think we're probably sugar sampling and or grape sampling three times as much as we used to, just because things are moving a lot faster and the timing has become very very critical. I, I feel like. 20 years ago or 15 years ago, like if we started feeling like a vineyard was getting ready to pick, we could, we'd had a window of, you know, sometimes up to like a week even where like it wouldn't make as much of a difference as long as we picked within that week. And now it's like, I feel like if we don't pick on the exact day that we think feel things are ready, it's it, it's seriously affecting the wine. If we pick a day too early or a day too late, it's like really become about getting the exact right day.
0: And do you think it becomes clearer in California now what are the good sites for wines and what are not as good sites? Or do you think that uh, the wine area of California is still expanding?
1: I might be wrong about this, but I think given there's a glut of wine and grapes in California as of the last like year or two now. And so I, I think... If anything there's some vineyards being torn out. So I don't think vineyard lands expanding at the moment. It doesn't mean that it won't again in the future, but I don't think it is right now. I'm not sure that it's obvious where the good sites are. I know that there's no way for a consumer to to be able to tell from a wine label where the good sites are. We don't have a like a AOC system or something like that. I think the other thing in California is uh, we're we're having a lot of drought years. Uh, it's been okay the last couple of years, but we came out, you know, uh, we came out of a 3-year drought and there's likely to be more droughts and so At some point, the good sites are where there's either good good water holding capacity in the soils or maybe where you have water available to water the vines. Um, and so that right there is is, is a defining point uh, even before you start talking about the other things.
0: Do you think that the American AVAs, and especially maybe in California,
1: would move more towards the
0: AOC system? No. I don't see
1: wineries or the people in positions to make those decisions wanting increased regulation. I think that the rules right now offer a lot of flexibility, and, and that's... From a business point of view, advantageous to the most of the people making these decisions or lobbying for these decisions. If you were to make wine somewhere else, where would you venture? I think uh, for for lifestyle purposes, maybe maybe the Southern Rhone Valley. We would we would like if it was if it was just all about wine. It would it would to me be really interesting to be able to make wine in Burgundy. But but uh, I think. From a lifestyle point of view, we would probably end up going further south than that.
0: If you were to prepare for the next five years, what what are your thoughts of the future? What do you think of your own market position? What kind of wines do you make to uphold that?
1: Well, our goal has always been to to over-deliver on the price of our wines, so to offer value in in the wines that we're making. I think that that's always a good strategy. I think customers are always looking for value. And if you have value that they recognize, that that should be a fairly sustainable business plan. There's, There's always competition. And we just try to run our business very lean and always be on the hustle. And so try to keep our overhead low, make wines that are interesting and exciting for people at prices that they can afford. And, um, I guess, weather the storms. I always want to talk, I guess, more about like, I mean, we're really interested in our carbon footprint and like environmental issues and how they affect the wine business and how the wine business affects the environment. And so that's my agenda these days is to work on lowering our carbon footprint and having conversations about how we can do that in our business, but how the wine industry can do that in general. We don't have all the answers, but that's something I'm always, I I want, I want consumers to be more aware of all of that stuff when they're making wine making or wine buying decisions, I think, or really, I think I think consumers should be factoring in those kind of things when they're making any sort of buying decisions. And so, uh, I think that's relevant to anybody making any goods, but uh, you know, in my world, it's very relevant to wine right now and grape growing practices as well.
0: Let's go into that a bit. How do you feel about the? Use of artificial, both fertilizers, the repellents on the one side and the use of
1: copper on the other side, polluting the ground and that kind of dilemma. It's a a complicated conversation there. I think that we would like to look at not only whether a vineyard's being... we, 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 We generally want vineyards to be organically farmed, but there are times where I can start to see the reasoning behind doing something not organic that would ultimately lower the carbon footprint of the vineyard i think well and copper is a whole other subject i know copper has become very contested in europe it's not it's not as we're not as dependent on copper in the united states there's plenty of vineyards where we don't we we don't use it at all but we do use it in some cases but not we're not making a lot of passes with copper so i don't think copper accumulation in our in our vineyards is is a huge issue yet but in general when you have it, the problem with the, all of these things is like when if you if you have a certifying agency to say that something's organic there's at least this third party that monitors the situation and you can take that to your customers and and it's there's a like a level of confidence there and so if you move if you start to sway away from that then you lose that level of confidence and and you don't have as clear of a message to to transmit to customers so i mean there, there's right now there's no there's no like carbon footprint certification so you can't like it would be interesting if if every bottle of wine had its actual carbon footprint labeled on the bottle. And but it's it's not easy. To, I mean, it's very costly to get those kind of that kind of data and be able to to calculate that for each individual wine, or even for a winery in general. At like our size, like we don't have the resources to get that full data set. So I guess I guess what I'm saying is I'm not a big fan of using commercial and conventional chemicals in the vineyard. But they're they're if if you can cut down number of like tractor passes significantly it might it might make sense Uh, i think it it, again it's like it's everything has to be very site specific it's hard to just like make blanket statements about these things
0: it seems to me that the biodynamical production is getting more of a, a foothold in the wine production as well do you see that as a positive or do you more want to follow the organic production
1: organic Grape growing or organic viticulture to me is very practical. And I think the benefits are are easy to assess. The biodynamics is is tougher. We have a couple of vineyards that are farmed biodynamically and with good results, but it's hard to quantify to significance what those results are. So at the very minimum, you have to be in the vineyard a lot when you're farming biodynamically. And so I think that's always a positive. Like you're gonna, you're gonna spot problems earlier. You're gonna, you're gonna know the vineyard better and you're gonna micro farm pieces of the vineyard because you're there a lot and you're seeing what's going on. Ultimately that could lead to less chemical usage, less passes, you know, not doing unnecessary things. And then the actual biodynamic practices, I I believe in them, but again, it's like, it's, it's hard. It's, I'm not, I don't have the full confidence to like push that on the growers that we're working with. I think it feels right to me but i don't it's that that's hard to go to a grower and just say oh this feels good they have to feel it too i think some of it makes sense to me though
0: and then in the in the same discussion and then, then it would be natural to talk a bit about the natural wine movement your wines are quite in a for lack of a better word clean And then, I don't know if you have the same strong market in the U.S. uh, as well, but in Europe, there is quite a strong niche market for making natural wines where you allow for what a traditionalist would call wine faults.
1: Yeah, I mean, we definitely have that market too. I think our wines, we're like on the fringes of natural wine, I suppose. We're grouped in with that often, and I think we believe in or adhere to a lot of the same principles. It really depends on how you define natural wine. If it's going to be zero, zero, then we don't at all, we wouldn't be part of that or qualify for that. We, most of our wines are all, really all of our wines are sulfured at least at, at bottling. I think that that's part of the cleanness. It also depends, again, this depends on variety and a, a lot of other factors too, but with the amount of wine that we're producing and kind of shipping to a lot of places, it's more comfortable for us and the style of wine that we're trying to make. I think the a little bit of sulfur is beneficial. We're not quite ready to give up on that. I guess, you know, we try to, uh, winemaking wise too, we just try to pay a lot of attention to things and even if we're not making a lot of interventions to the wine, I guess we're still monitoring things and keeping an eye on it. If we see, if we see things going in a direction that we're not comfortable with, we probably will do something, but there is a limit to what we will do as well. There's things that we're, there's definitely lines we're not willing to cross.
0: And finishing off, if you were to make the perfect wine, what would it taste like?
1: Well, the perfect wine. I don't, I don't know what the perfect wine tastes like. I guess I, I, I think wines are great. When there's a lot of complexity and nuance in a wine, that's easy to recognize. I, I, I think uh, when somebody who doesn't drink a lot of wine can quickly realize how interesting that wine is, that that's a very successful wine. You know, I think that if you can consume it and it enhances a meal, I think that that's great. I don't necessarily always think that wine needs to be like it's like it should be part of a meal, part of a conversation, part of an experience at a table. So it doesn't necessarily need to be like show stopping and like get all the attention to necessarily be great. I think it can, it can just it can just accompany things and still be great. So the perfect wine, I guess, is uh, you know, really it's like the perfect wine is like there at the perfect time and the perfect place with the perfect people, and that's like those are the best wines when you're like. The whole, everything's working together. But how do you make that wine? I don't know. I think you have to make the experience, not the wine.
0: Thank you very much for coming, uh, Kenny of Folk Machine. Thank you.